As members of the public in Myanmar push back against the country's newly installed military rulers, will assess how potent acts of resistance, both large and small, might be following Monday's coup in the country. The search for Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. We'll hear from the journalist whose investigation has led her to believe that the official account of one of the most baffling disappearances in aviation history was made up. And longing for the Louvre, France's prominent cultural leaders rebuke President Emmanuel Macron by insisting that the country's museums and cultural institutions should be allowed to reopen as soon as possible. Monocle's correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 4th of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and with us today to cast their expert eyes across some of the day's big news stories are Monocle 24's Carlotta Rebello. She's in London for us and by Henry Rhys Sheridan who is in New York City. Carlotta, Henry, how are you both doing today? Henry, you first. Uh, I'm doing very well. I'm just, uh, I'm not sure what the weather's like up in uh, Toronto where you are. Uh, uh, Oh, wait, no, wait, you're in Wales, aren't you, at the moment? I am still in Wales, flying the flag for the home country, Henry. Oh, right, okay. In that case, there almost certainly isn't a parallel in terms of weather conditions, but uh, I'm in the middle of a snowstorm here. It's been pretty uh, fun watching people uh, try to dig their cars out all week, so I've been enjoying myself. So I suppose there'll be a delay to your IKEA deliveries, Henry, seeing as that's what we get from you week on week when we speak to you on a Thursday here on the late edition. Uh, listen, I'll keep both you and the listeners abreast of any delays in my IKEA deliveries. You don't need to worry about that uh, on this show and others. And Colotta, it is a Thursday, so a new episode of The Urbanist has just premiered here on Monocle 24. Can you give those of us who haven't heard it yet a sneak peek of what's in store this week? Yes, this week we actually are looking at vaccine deployment on The Urbanist, an issue that, of course, uh, most cities around the world are uh, facing at the moment. Uh, but instead of focusing on, you know, the rise in infections and uh, how countries are dealing with COVID, we wanted to look exactly at how, you know, you ensure the vaccine can get the right people and what cities are doing around the world. We're seeing, for example, uh, venues that are used for huge events being repurposed as vaccination centres. Um, and we're hearing as well about the logistics of getting, you know, um, the job from point A to point B. So it's an interesting episode on a very uh, timely topic. Look forward to giving that a listen, Carlotta. Carlotta Rebello and Henry Rees Sheridan, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin today's show in Myanmar, where this was the sound that rang out across parts of the capital city, Yangon, yesterday evening. The clanging of pots and pans from doorways, balconies and windows across Yangon last night, a demonstration of discontent at Myanmar's military rulers who staged a coup on Monday by detaining Myanmar's civilian leaders, including the leader of its government, Aung San Suu Kyi, and its president, Win Myint. That protest in sound last night isn't the only act of civil disobedience to have taken place in Myanmar since the generals seized power. Doctors, nurses and teachers are among those figures who have resigned from their positions in protest. Well, Professor Penny Green is the director of the International State Crime Initiative, and she told The Globalist earlier today whether any attempt by the military to respond with force to these acts of resistance could possibly succeed. Of course, this this may backfire, 
um, because we know that when Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest for those 15 years, um, a, a very effective um, civil resistance movement developed within civil society. It was largely underground, but it also operated um, outside the borders of um, Myanmar, in, specifically in, in Thailand. The military is deeply unpopular inside Myanmar. And I think that the, the, the symbolic um, value of the, the banging of pots and pans was historically that's something that the Burmese have used to ward off evil. So it's very it, it's a very meaningful expression, at least symbolically. Um, but it, there was an immediate response, uh, and this is in a country which has experienced the very worst atrocities from this particular, from the military and from historic military regimes in the past. So it's the brave moves. I mean, the, the health workers in particular are, are, are incredibly courageous, and we'll have to see what kind of response that this activity elicits. I think particularly interesting are calls to boycott military-owned and military-backed corporations. So Mitel, one of the military's um, telecoms corporations, uh, is currently um, under attack and under threat of boycott. So I think uh, the more that the resistance movement develops, the more impact it's going to have. Professor Penny Green there, speaking to us a little earlier today on The Globalist. Um, Carlotta, perhaps you can begin for us here by explaining the charges that have been levied against Aung San Suu Kyi and uh, Myanmar's uh, democratically elected president, Win Myint. Those charges to, to those outside the country appear opportunistic at best and pretty obscure, don't they? Yes, I mean, those charges basically are against the fact that she had walkie-talkies. It's as easy as that. So the police uh, said that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi had uh, breached the country's import and export law and was also in possession of illegal communication devices. Uh, they found uh, 10 um, walkie-talkies uh, at her home. She is to remain in custody until the 15th of February and the deposed president uh, is being uh, charged, uh, in, on his case, with violating uh, rules banning gatherings during the COVID pandemic and is also to be in custody for two weeks. Uh, of course, this is, you know, um, when we look at these charges, uh, to think that um, you can uh, arrest someone for uh, that, especially so when it's the military here at, at stake, it's obviously trumped up charges. There's no other way to look at it. Um, you know, this um, court order to detain Aung San Suu Kyi was provided by an official from her own party, the National League for Democracy, uh, was dated on the day of the coup, and it, it's the same order that authorised her detention um, for 15 days. Um, and yes, it was after that that soldiers looking through her home found uh, set uh, said equipment uh, allegedly brought into the country without uh, the correct paperwork. And Henry, if the military, as Penny Green mentioned a few moments ago, is aware of just how unpopular it is among large parts of the general population in Myanmar, do you have any sense whether that means it'll try and rule or try and respond to these acts of, of resistance that we've seen so far? Do you think that that will change the response from the military in any way? Um, I think one of the most interesting variables is going to dictate the nature of both the governance by the new military regime uh, and, and also the nature of the resistance 
against that government is the fact that this coup is coming uh, obviously in the middle of a in the in, in the middle of, of, of a global pandemic, uh, which Myanmar is affected by, in the same way that every other country is. Um, and you know the nature of the resistance, uh, of the kind of people staying indoors and and, and banging on pots and pans. Uh, also, as was mentioned uh, in the clip, uh, the kind of internal resistance with people. Uh, uh, who are employed by government-run organisations, both hospitals and also businesses, effectively uh, going on strike uh, as a form of resistance, uh, is an interesting example of, of, of activists and people who want to to, to oppose this move, uh, uh, finding creative ways to do so while not endangering uh, their fellow citizens, uh, not putting other people uh, at risk unnecessarily by by gathering, obviously, in 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 public spaces, um, and in terms of you know the way that's uh, the, the way that the government is going to uh, react to that. I mean, even if the government has absolutely no uh, intention uh, to to uh, uh, govern the country in the style that the people want, for the sake of you know keeping keeping their country functioning on a very basic level, they're going to have to uh, enforce. Uh, some kind of restriction on people's uh, movement and ability to gather for the sake of keeping infection rates down and and, and get people to comply with that. Um, uh, and so I think that that's probably the, um, the, the most significant factor which is going to kind of delineate the contours of the relationship between governance and resistance in this, in this particular chapter of the country's history that's just opened. Next here on The Late Edition, all this week here on Monocle 24, we've been examining the disappearance of flight MH370, which took off from Kuala Lumpur on the 8th of March 2014, destined for Beijing. The plane vanished shortly after takeoff and has never been found. The French journalist Florence de Changy's new book, The Disappearing Act, offers a possible explanation into one of modern aviation's greatest mysteries. In today's episode, Florence details for us the forensic steps she undertook during her investigation to confirm, in her opinion, that the official narrative over the fate of MH370 was fabricated. Taking their anger to the streets, these relatives of passengers aboard MH370 say Malaysian officials deliberately concealed information, wasted resources and delayed any possible rescue operations. I know it sounds a bit heavy and hard to believe, but I'll try and explain how I came to completely dismiss uh, the narrative offered by the authorities as an explanation and therefore be able to call it a complete fabrication. So let me remind you what was this official uh, narrative first. It's easy to cut it in three parts. According to the Malaysian Prime Minister, Najib Razak, he said at the time that it was a case of deliberate act. First, someone in the cockpit had turned off the transponder and the ACAR system, which is the system that automatically sends reports about the state of the plane, in this case every 30 minutes. The Royal Malaysian Air Force primary radar data showed that an aircraft which was believed but not confirmed. Second, the plane had made a U-turn and flown back over Malaysia, east to west, 
and it then veered north up the Malacca Straits. And finally, this is the third stage, on the basis of satellite data, it was established that MH370 eventually headed south to the Southern Indian Ocean, where it was later said beyond reasonable doubt to have crashed at uh, 8.19 a.m. So let's take uh, the three parts one by one. First, the instruments are supposedly turned off. Actually, if someone in the cockpit had turned off the transponder, all indications related to MH370 would have come off the screens of the traffic controllers at the same time. But, and this is recorded in the official report, it took up to 37 seconds for all the flight data, it's called mode C and mode S, to gradually come off the ATC screen in Vietnam, in Thailand, and in Kuala Lumpur. So the progressive way the information related to MH370 came off the screens proves that something different than someone simply turning off the transponder happened. It actually hints at some kind of jamming. Second, I found that there was no solid evidence that MH370 did its famous U-turn just after the waypoint Igari. Actually, there are more evidence to the fact that it did not. The most obvious one is the fact that when experts tried to recreate the U-turn as described, it proved to be essentially beyond the capability of a B777. So that should almost be the end of that U-turn. But anyway, there was another enormous alibi to the U-turn at Waypoint Igari, which is the fact that MH370 was actually seen by Vietnamese primary radar until the next waypoint on its route, which is called BTOD, and which is 37 miles after Igari. So you can't have the plane making a U-turn towards the west at waypoint Igari if it has been seen at BTOD, which is further east. Now, when you had some radar uh, data published in the official uh, report related to a plane flying over Malaysia and attributed to MH370, expert sources I discussed this with basically said the data was grossly inconsistent with a B777. And same for the radar images of the plane flying over Malaysia that were attributed to MH370. And two sources who saw these uh, images that were actually not published nor shared with any party uh, insisted that the target was not consistent with uh, a B777. Uh, it was essentially too small and, uh, and too fast. So the aircraft went across Thailand and Malaysia it, it runs down the border. Catherine T and her husband were sailing to Phuket, Thailand from Cochin, India on the night that Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 went missing. The British yachtswoman said that while she was alone on the deck doing night... First of all, we start uh, with this startling new detail about the jet's possible path. Yes, a senior Malaysian government official tells CNN that flight 370 may have been flown on purpose. Now you have another highly problematic issue with this official narrative because uh, besides Malaysia, MH370 is also supposed to have flown over or nearby Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore and Australia. Yet none of these countries 
have provided any evidence, not even a statement, that MH370 was in their airspace at any point. I mean, that's incredible. Some countries came up with very lame explanation, like staff were sleeping or the radars were turned off to save electricity or under maintenance, but it's not acceptable. In addition, the many US military ships and planes of the 7th Fleet that monitor that region 24-7 did not see MH370 do its U-turn either. Actually, the US military satellites did not provide any proof of the plane's U-turn or whereabouts. And most unbelievable of all, when the rogue B777 that had gone dark supposedly flew right over the Butterworth airbase, which is located in Penang on the west coast of Malaysia, that did not trigger any alert. But this is an airbase shared by the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore and Malaysia. It is under Australian command and the base should obviously have scrambled jets in a matter of minutes, if not seconds, if a massive rogue plane had really flown overhead. So anyway, all this, I believe, establishes pretty strongly that the plane just did not U-turn. In a way, Once you know it did not U-turn, it's almost a waste of time to discuss the pings provided by Inmasar for the third part of the official narrative, where the plane supposedly heads south. But I'll still quickly uh, say a few things about these pings, because it's important for people to realize that the only base for the massive search in the southern Indian Ocean was these very sophisticated so-called handshake pings. So a handshake ping is basically a signal sent by a base located on land in Perth in this instance, and it goes to the satellite 36,000 kilometers in the sky. From there, it finds the plane wherever it is, goes and say hi, and if the plane replies hi, the handshake, the ping goes back all the way to its base via the satellite. So based on this, they worked out with certitude that the plane was where they searched. I find it a bit hard to swallow, really. But the facts are, number one, the route established by these pings was not corroborated by anything else. Not a witness, no radar as we've seen, etc. Number two, such a method to locate a plane was unheard of at the time and has never been proven correct ever since. And the bottom line is that it clearly failed to locate the crash site. Once I got to the point where I was basically convinced that the plane never U-turned, it was back to square one in a way, back to these waypoints of uh, Igari and Beetod between uh, Malaysia and Vietnam around uh, 1.20, 1.30 a.m. And really asking myself, well, what happened there and then? The French journalist Florence de Changi there on her investigation into the disappearance of flight MH370 nearly seven years ago. And you can hear the final instalment of our series on that investigation on tomorrow's edition of The Globalist. That begins live at 7am London time here on Monocle 24. We'll finally hear on the late edition more than 100 notable names from France's museums and cultural institutions have signed an open letter to the French government calling on France's cultural 
institutions to be allowed to reopen as soon as possible. France's President Emmanuel Macron last week said that French museums would have to remain closed indefinitely. And a little earlier today, Ben Luke, the reviews editor at the Art newspaper in London, explained to us why museum leaders were pushing back against that assertion. So Emma Levine, who's the director of the Palais de Tokyo, Maya Hoffman, the, correct, the collector and director of the Luma Foundation, Biche Kuriga, who, who curated a Venice Biennale not long ago, all arguing for um, museums to be in the first wave of reopenings if there is further restriction and then um, also to be, um, you know, to be opened if you if you've been following this macron has said that students should have one day on campus per week if they can manage it if it's safe and i think the museums are basically arguing that they too are that kind of educational space that deserves that level of opening but of course they've been closed since october so this is a this is a very urgent situation for them and they're arguing that they are safe spaces the art newspaper's Ben Luke there speaking to us a little earlier today. Carlotta, a similar letter from Switzerland's leading cultural figures to the Swiss authorities has also been sent in a similar vein. Why is it, do you think, that museums are now falling front and centre into ideas of what a staggered reopening of our society in those places where lockdowns are still in force, what that opening might look like and the role that museums will play in that? I think it's, of course, there's the financial aspect of it and museums, um, a lot of, like a lot of other cultural institutions, including live music venues and theatres, have been closed for nearly a year now. And the financial constraints are pressing and there's only as much as they can endure and carry on uh, through patronage or bursaries or support uh, from other grants. So that is, of course, the main issue. But then we need to think as well about, you know, the ongoing um kind of crisis that's also um, prompted by the pandemic and by lockdowns, which is when it comes to mental health as well for people. It is very much needed, that sense of normality and going to a museum uh, really helps with that. Going um, out and being able to experience the city as usual is also part of that. I know, for example, in my home country of Portugal, there's also been uh, a few letters written up by leaders of certain cultural institutions uh, advocating exactly that and the importance of these spaces, not only for you know the artists and people who work in the arts and for financial reasons, but for the psyche of people too and for citizens uh, to provide um a safe space uh, of uh, when uh, for them to leave the house, and when it comes to the slow reopening of cities, um, if done correctly, uh, museums can be um, open again uh, with you know controlled entrances, limited uh, um, amount of people, etc. I'll give you an example here in London. Uh, Tate Britain over the winter has had its winter commissioned, um, which is a celebration of you know bright lights and color. Um, in its honest facade, so it can be seen from the outside. And for a lot of people, um, that has been, you know, the only cultural um, event they've been able to attend in the last 12 months uh, because it involves a walk, which we are allowed to do um, as part of, you know, our government-mandated exercise. Um, and it's an exhibition that you can see from the outside. And I don't, can't remember the last time that one single piece of art um, has been seen by so many people during one season. Uh, pretty much everyone I know uh, did that trek to Tate Britain in London to go and see that. And that just shows you um, this desire, appetite and craving uh, for more culture in our lives.
And Henry Colotter describing there how some museums have used the outdoor space to uh, ensure that people are exposed to, to art and to culture during these times of lockdown. But looking at the interiors of museums, is there anything in your mind about museum buildings as the signatories to this letter in France are suggesting that make them safe places for people to wander, to have some kind of, of respite from being in, indoors all day? Do you think that that museums should reopen in, in that vein? I mean, I'm not an expert on the on the kind of uh, spatial transmission of, of the virus, but the most of the museums that I've been to tend to have higher ceilings and larger rooms than most other buildings. And so I do think that the uh, if museums in France uh, follow that pattern, I haven't been to many outside of Paris, uh, you know, I do think that there's a case to be made that relative to other uh, institutions, certainly relative to institutions which in some countries are remaining uh, open, like uh, uh, restaurants. Uh, you know, th- there seems to be a, 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 they seem to be more suitable for letting people come in and circulate in a socially distanced way. And you know, it, it, it's an interesting uh, issue. Obviously, these institutions are used to kind of defending their value. Normally, it's for the sake of receiving. Uh, Certain portions of government funding, regards to sorry, relative to other 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 fields that uh, uh, eat up uh, public funds, but now they're kind of arguing even for the ability even to open and for their value to be weighed up against you know a serious public health concern. It's a much more challenging case to make, and I think that uh, government's response. Uh, uh, to these kinds of appeals uh, reveals uh, an interesting, it, it kind of gives an interesting insight into the, the status of, of, of art and the way that art and uh, uh, other cultural artefacts are, are valued in, in society today. Well, Henry Rees Sheridan and Carlotta Rebello, our very own museum-grade masterpieces here at Monocle 24. Thank you both very much for being with us on the programme today. That's all we have time for for today's show. A big thanks, too, to Louis Allen in London. He edited today's programme. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Tomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.